Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, and um, welcome to the Institute of World Politics. Um, for those of you that are new, how many new people? Okay, great. Um, for those of you that are new, um, the Institute of World Politics is a graduate school. Um, it's fully accredited, um, and we deal in national security and international affairs. <coughs> we have five master degree programs, and we have one doctoral program. Um, we have 18 certificates of study, um, and so those things are all available to you. And these uh, afternoon uh, discussions, lectures, whatever you call them, are continuously ongoing. So if you're interested in learning um, more about us or thinking about taking a, even just one class or, you know, then find any one of the staff and they'll be able to give you the information. It's also on the website. End of the commercial. Um, so today our speaker is Rick Fisher. He is a senior fellow on Asian military affairs at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Um, I'm sure you're going to find he's quite knowledgeable. He is a recognized authority on the PRC military and the Asian, Asian military balance and the implications for Asia and the United States. His most recent book is, let me look at this here, China's Military Modernization, Building for Regional and Global Reach. He's the author of nearly 200 studies, okay, on challenges to American security, economic and foreign policy in Asia. Um, he's testified before Congress um, on multiple occasions about the modernization of China's military. And he's currently president of Pacific Strategies Incorporated. So you're, you have somebody here today who's really an authority, and I think you'll find um, he's quite, um, quite a speaker. So please help me welcome um, Rick to the podium. Thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Uh, I am certainly not a stranger to the Institute of uh, World Politics. Uh, I have been uh, a guest lecturer here uh, on a number of occasions, uh, especially during the time uh, many years ago when uh, Ross Monroe was teaching uh, a uh, popular class on uh, Chinese uh, military strategies. Uh, Since then, uh, the Institute of World Politics uh, has, in my mind, always been a strong refuge in Washington for realism. Uh, I know that it is uh, very popular, has been, and uh, I hope always will be uh, with uh, the professional uh, government, uh, 
expert class uh, because it's at least been my experience that at IWP, if uh, you are looking to learn more about uh, the problems that you're going to confront, the challenges, the threats, uh, this is an excellent place to do so. Uh, and in that vein, what I'd like to do is, is run quickly through uh, a, a large number of slides that uh, essentially outlines uh, my uh, findings, uh, the information that I've been able to gather over 20 years of uh, watching uh, the People's Liberation Army and to give an idea of the developing global ambitions, global military ambitions of China. Uh, earlier this uh, spring, uh, uh, when, when he was answering questions uh, for the Senate for his confirmation hearing, uh, current Pacific Commander uh, Admiral uh, Philip Davidson stated, it is increasingly clear that China wants to shape the wor a world aligned with its own authoritarian model. Uh, that's a kind of uh, challenge that we have not faced since the demise of uh, the Soviet Communist Party uh, in the late 1990s. Now, what I'd like to do is essentially offer my presentation in, in five parts to brief, very briefly uh, explain China's global projection direction. Then to take some time to look at China's proto-alliances, the kind of alliances that it is organizing to help fulfill its goals. Uh, to look at some of the immediate dangers from China's shift to global strategic and military projection. And then to look in some more detail on the means that China is developing for that global projection. And then at the end, briefly consider what can the United States do about this? What should we be doing? Uh, I apologize for the, for the small print, but uh, essentially here, what I'm trying to outline is, is that China's global projection really starts from Taiwan. Uh, when a country uh, enters into its initial diplomatic relationship with China, uh, one of the first requirements that the Chinese offer is that you accept China's one China policy, meaning course, China is China, Taiwan is part of China. The United States does not recognize China's one China policy. We acknowledge that that's what they say, but we don't accept it. Uh, Taiwan today uh, has developed into a vibrant democracy of 23, 24 million people, uh, and it is, has a, a very uh, a very uh, unique strategic position in Asia. It uh, basically divides the Pacific in half. If you control Taiwan, you also control uh, Japan's and South Korea's access to everything it needs to survive. You divide uh, those economies from the economies of Southeast Asia. And for China, control of Taiwan will also allow it to consolidate its control over the South China Sea and begin 
its projection or, or begin or strengthen its projection into the Indian Ocean and beyond. Uh, China, however, is already uh, uh, building the economic and then political uh, building blocks on which it will also be constructing, as we see unfolding already, uh, its growing military access and influence. Uh, the uh, estimated one to 10 billion one belt, one road program of uh, global infrastructure investment, the uh, maritime Silk Road program of, of port and airport investments is, is unfolding. And in continents like Africa and uh, Latin America, where China has already invested hundreds of billions of dollars in, in infra infrastructure, it is beginning to reap the beginnings of a global military influence network, which it will translate into bases, access, and, and such. But uh, control, it all starts with Taiwan, gaining control of Taiwan, especially because of the very deep waters that surround the island that uh, will probably make it uh, the, an early uh, uh, base for China's strategic ballistic missile submarines. Moving on to proto-alliances. The first and, and most uh, famous uh, proto-alliance is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which uh, came together in uh, June of 2001 and currently has eight member states, four observers, six dialogue partners. Five of these states are nuclear powers. And if, if you consider that uh, in, in uh, more benign climes, uh, uh, North Korea could become a part that would make it six nuclear powers. For China, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, allows it to put its leadership at the center of a region, dominate or displace competitors, uh, and leverage existing dominant political economic influence to, into increasing military influence and, and then access. Uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization has also given the PLA, People's Liberation Army, China's military, uh, many opportunities to begin to exercise uh, with, in, in a multinational setting with increasingly modern hardware and also to deploy that hardware uh, and more of it to increasing distances, especially uh, to Russia. But it's uh, very significant that uh, the last peace mission exercise, which is seemingly the sort of main product of the Shanghai Corp Cooperation Organization uh, this, this past uh, August, was the first one to include India and Pakistan as, as member states. Uh, but it was India's entry into the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which I consider to have been a great victory for China and Russia. But immediately, China and Russia went to hold a much larger military exercise, uh, uh, the Vostok 18, uh, which, which the Chinese made a very significant contribution, and, and uh, kind of eclipsed or showed that Russia and China could also eclipse the military cooperation that takes place under, under the SCO. A second proto-alliance 
emerged uh, this past summer. At the end of May, the Chinese Ministry of Defense uh, announced that uh, it was going to host the first China-Africa Defense and Security Forum. It ended up being attended uh, by 49 delegations from 49 African countries and to include the delegation from the African Union. Took place, a conference took place at the uh, PLA National Defense University in Beijing. And then after that two-day conference, smaller delegations went to visit various PLA services and uh, weapons factories. Press reporting from uh, the, uh, the forum indicates that there is a larger, more detailed military program of cooperation that is, that is being formed. It's also interesting that this forum uh, is, is not run by uh, a secretariat that includes all the member states. It's run directly out of the uh, Office of Foreign, Foreign Affairs of the Central Military Commission. It's almost as if this forum uh, is a kind of uh, direct uh, an organization directly controlled by the PLA. Um, I was uh, recently able to go to South Africa for the first time in uh, mid-September to attend uh, an arms exhibition. Uh, one of my main missions there was to try to ask as many people as I could about this forum and where they thought it would go. Uh, hardly anybody had any idea about the, the direction and future of, of this forum. Um, they'd heard about it, but uh, details have, and the such have been uh, very closely held. But when asked, do you think that this forum could eventually develop in, in the direction of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, nobody would discount that. Everybody thought that was uh, a fair possibility. So, if that becomes the case, if this forum develops into another SCO-like uh, uh, proto-alliance, we'll see exercises, uh, increased Chinese arms sales, uh, that will lead to uh, increased Chinese access to ports, and even Chinese experts after this forum were saying that uh, China was, was very clearly looking to gain uh, a base on the Western African continent to complement the base that had just opened in Djibouti uh, uh, in the summer of uh, 2017. And consolidation of this forum will provide an example as well as a, a, a means to promote a similar forum, another proto-alliance, most likely in Latin America. And one danger of, of, of this development transpired uh, earlier in this decade. From about 2012 to 2015, uh, China was very active in trying to rearm, begin the rearmament of Argentina to help uh, the former uh, leftist uh, nationalist uh, government, which was using the uh, continued British occupation of the Falklands to try to attract uh, uh, nationalist support, uh, China was essentially 
uh, trying to rearm Argentina and, and on the way potentially make possible a second war over the Falklands. Um, in my opinion, this is, this is a, a great danger to the interests of the United States. If uh, Argentina decided to uh, make another go at the Falklands, which, what, who would the United States support? All of our friends in the southern cone of uh, South America would probably support Argentina. So if we supported the British, then we would gravely damage our relations with uh, all of our friends in the southern part of uh, uh, Latin America. That would equate to open doors for the Chinese, expanded influence, and probably the beginning of uh, access and even probably basing rights in, uh, in Latin America. So moving on, other dangers that are already upon us from China's uh, global projection. Uh, as I mentioned, the conquest of Taiwan is a very early and key requirement for China to be successful in global power projection. And there, there are, is increasing concern that China could elect to attack Taiwan in the early to mid-2020s. The balance of power is shifting very rapidly and has been for, for many years to the Chinese side. And China has been concentrating on gathering the means to actually invade the island. Uh, China ignored this for decades, but in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, there has been a real investment in the, in the, mean, the amphibious means and the airborne means to reach Taiwan. Now, in terms of formal PLA Navy amphibious lift, it's long been estimated that China could only move about one or two divisions to Taiwan, not nearly enough to uh, win the battle. But what often is not taken into consideration, uh, it was mentioned, I think, once in uh, the uh, annual Department of Defense PLA report, is that China has mobilized thousands, probably tens of thousands, of civilian uh, cargo platforms, uh, both uh, barges. There was a UN report that came out uh, about 2007 that uh, stated, the report was co-written by Chinese authors, that China had about 75,000 river barges. Even if, even if you consider that 10,000 of those could be mobilized and you go on Alibaba and you see these barges, you know, they're for sale, two, three million apiece. They can carry 10 tanks, about as much as a, much as a Chinese uh, landing, landing ship tank, LST. Um, that will require, however, that China capture ports, capture airfields, so that about the 2,000 Boeings and Airbuses can also be enlisted to transport uh, men, and, men and materiel. And uh, China does conduct exercises with civilian uh, river barges and does conduct regular exercises with civilian airline fleets uh, uh, to move, to have uh, troop and cargo moving exercises, mobility exercises. 
Um, there, there are roughly about 120 large uh, cargo aircraft in China's uh, civilian airline fleets. Uh, that equates to about five times the airlift capability of the PLA Air Force. So if China is able to establish bridgeheads on Taiwan, capture a couple of key ports, capture a couple of key airfields, then uh, that, would, that would pose a very grave danger for Taiwan. Uh, 12,000 missiles that uh, target Taiwan could be increased to over 4,000 missiles if China builds, replaces each single missile, uh, SR, short range ballistic missile system with a second generation system made by two companies that uh, could carry anywhere from uh, a two long range SRBMs up to eight artillery rocket based short range ballistic missiles. The danger of an invasion of Taiwan becomes especially acute if we have a crisis on the Korean Peninsula. And I'm, I, it, is, it is clear to me that over the last 15 years, China, especially since the, 2000, the 2003 Iraq War, that China has ramped up its, its effort to, to not covertly, not so covert, covertly, help North Korea to acquire a new generation of military capabilities. These two North Korean ICBMs ride on trucks. The left one is made directly in China. The right one is made in North Korea from parts made in China. Uh, both these, these trucks have appeared uh, repeatedly in, in parades since 2012. And uh, I am waiting, not holding my breath, but waiting for the U.S. government to sanction those companies. It hasn't happened yet, but it really should. Uh, when North Korea develops these ICBMs, they could very likely have multiple warheads. I, 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 I project this because in January of last year, uh, Pakistan tested a multiple warhead medium-range ballistic missile. The cone of the Pakistani missile looks very much like the North Korean missile. And given the history of cooperation, missile cooperation, between Pakistan and North Korea, it's, in my opinion, it's very likely that the Pakistani capability for multiple warheads has already been transferred to the North Koreans. And these, these, the missile on the left can hit us right in this city the missile on the, on, the, on the right can reach at least as far as Chicago. Uh, why has China helped help bring this about? Well, chi China wants to be able to use this, this North Korean capability as a continued and accelerated uh, a tool of blackmail. And uh, it is, it is we, are, we are very lucky that uh, the Trump administration has, has taken this challenge by the collar and uh, is, is demanding that there be a peaceful resolution. The third danger is from 
a medium-term developing entente between Russia and China. Um, I say medium-term because based on conversations uh, with the Russians, they understand that into the 2030s and beyond that the Chinese could turn on them too, revive uh, latent uh, uh, historic territorial claims and, uh, and, and try to take pieces of Siberia away from Russia. But before that, President Putin has decided that he needs China's economic support and is willing to give, sell new military technology to uh, China and also to increasingly cooperate strategically with China as long as this uh, helps to weaken the United States. Over the last uh, two years, the Chinese and the Russians have held two missile defense tabletop command post exercises. Now, the immediate question that I asked was that, okay, if you're practicing missile defense, are you also working on cooperative missile offense? And we should be very concerned about that possibility. And uh, that, that really brings, for me, brings home the danger of the Chinese-Russian entente. The possibilities for Russian-Chinese military cooperation, cooperation development is, uh, is, is, is pretty good. Um, they already hold uh, a near-regular naval uh, land exercises. Uh, there's an increasing Air Force component to these exercises. Uh, and it's, to me, uh, quite realistic that in the event China decides to attack Taiwan, that there will be many layers of, of, of Russian support for that operation. A fourth immediate danger, or next immediate danger, is the conflict over the Ryukus, which are currently uh, Japanese territory or administered by Japan in the case of uh, the Senkaku Islands. Uh, China is developing a fast trimaran frigate, and so, so is Japan. China is introducing large hovercraft to be able to move heavy armor quickly over uh, attack significantly tactical distance. Japan is developing new fast amphibious landing armor. China, along with Russia, is developing a new heavy lift helicopter. Japan is buying MV-22 Osprey fast uh, vertical lift uh, uh, cargo and troop transports from the United States. This is an arms race. Uh, it's in our interest to make sure Japan wins it. Uh, if, if there is weakness, China could be tempted to go after the Senkakus, or in the case of a Taiwan operation, attack the southern chain of the Ryukus uh, to uh, uh, build a defensive barrier against Japan or a possible American attempt to uh, retake the island. And even without global reach, China is surrounding India. Uh, the, the Chinese promote continuing 
tension over over territorial disputes with with India. Uh, they, they have they have ensured that Pakistan has become a nuclear missile power uh, to also threaten India, and uh, through its investments, China is trying to build political and then the military influence to gain military access to Sri Lanka and is competing with India for military access in the Seychelles and the Maldives. Now looking into uh, specific means for global power projection. I've mentioned already uh, some of the basing networks that uh, Base spaces that China is seeking, and, and and one of the tactics that that China is using to try to gain military access has been termed uh, debt trap diplomacy. It's a very commonly used uh, term. Uh, the Chinese will walk up, offer you uh, loans uh, for projects that that seem great, uh, promise uh, low rates. Uh, but then, when the payments become due, and you can't make those payments because you've, you're, you're in debt to other countries, or you're in debt because of subsequent Chinese uh, projects uh, funded by loans, the Chinese demand repayment. And uh, eventually, if you can't put off the money, well, okay, you have this nice airport, why don't you, why don't you let us have that? Or this nice pick, this nice port. Let us have that. The first uh, such exercise almost happened in Venezuela in late 2014. Uh, the, a Chinese newspaper carried a story uh, that uh, the Venezuelan government was ready to give China an island right off the coast of Venezuela in order to pay back uh, the then 50 billion dollars uh, in debt owed owed to China. The very next day. The Chinese Foreign Ministry took special pains and time to deny the story in a Chinese newspaper that really was only read in China. I mean, the only reason I found out about it was because the Chinese uh, Foreign Ministry spokesman made, made such a story about it. To me, this was a, a propaganda psychological exercise. This was a warning that Chinese power influence in Latin America was reaching the point where it could actually contemplate obtaining military access or even actual bases in Latin America. Uh, China already has, in my opinion, a military base in Argentina. Uh, this is a space tracking and control base which today is controlled by a new branch of the People's Liberation Army called the Strategic Support Force. The Strategic Support Force, I'll talk about this a bit later, uh, would be the lead service for conducting warfare in outer space. So that base, the tip of Argentina, is, is not only going to be a key node in controlling future Chinese combat spacecraft, it will also be a node for China's developing already formidable capabilities in cyber warfare. As we go into the 2030s, China is going to have completely nuclear-powered 
carrier battle groups. That's not just the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, nuclear-powered escort cruiser, but also a nuclear-powered underway replenishment ship. No other country has built a nuclear-powered underway replenishment ship. But in December uh, last year, at a, an exhibition in Shanghai, one of the Chinese shipbuilding com uh, companies revealed that it is indeed uh, developing such a ship. With nuclear power, you can travel faster. You have unlimited endurance, limited only by uh, your consumables, food, air airplane fuel, and such. Uh, it would basically enable China to very rapidly respond to global crises. Underwater power projection is also well underway. Uh, there was a, a published estimate in 2016 that China could build up to 14 of its uh, third-generation nuclear attack submarine. That would lead to about a fleet of about 20 SSNs. Compare that to uh, the 10 SSBNs that the United States intends to build for our next generation, which might allow uh, three to four to be on patrol, whereas 20 SSNs could allow the Chinese to have six or seven attack submarines on patrol. And uh, Chinese sources indicate that they are working on a nuclear-powered air-independent propulsion system that would be much more, much less expensive, a much less expensive way to rapidly increase their number of nuclear-powered submarines. China is also seeking to wire the ocean floor. It has invested hugely in its underwater Great Wall to try and close off littoral areas or perhaps uh, the seas off of Pakistan to adversary submarines. China is also investing in amphibious transport. It's now working on its seventh 20, 25,000 ton landing uh, uh, ship dock uh, and will soon begin building uh, new landing helicopter dock ships able to uh, perform uh, airborne amphibious projection. China has decided to vastly increase the size of the PLA Marine Corps, up to about 100,000 troops, and the Marines are becoming increasingly mechanized. Previously, their armor was designed essentially to take the beach, uh, take the port, maybe take the airfield that was close to the beach. But now, China is equipping its Marine Corps with light tanks, and medium-weight wheeled armored combat vehicles that are capable of carrying the fight beyond the beachhead well inland. Power projection. Air mobile projection is also on the way. China has probably about a dozen of its new Xi'an Y-20 uh, uh, transport about the same size as our C-17. Here we have a picture of uh, uh, Y-20 next to a C-17 that went to one of the previous Zhuhai air shows, along with uh, its Russian equivalent, the IL-76. When China masters high-bypass turbofan engines, 
which it's working on, invested a great deal of money in trying to perfect. Uh, it could build up its Y24 up to 5400. In 2014, a PLA, a National Defense University report, suggested that the PLA required 400 of these. The United States only has about 220 C-17s. And uh, the PLA is also very interested in a C-5A size, larger military transport, which it almost obtained the means to produce from the Ukraine very recently. Uh, lightweight uh, and airborne armored forces are also becoming increasingly mechanized. Uh, the PLA Airborne uh, uh, Corps is, is one of the first to develop and include lightweight air droppable 122 millimeter artillery systems, uh, armored infantry fighting vehicles uh, and such. It's not as heavily armed as the Russian Airborne Corps, but it's definitely moving in the direction of, of mechanization. It's PLA Special Forces, which have grown appreciably in number over the last 15 years, are also becoming mechanized uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, all-terrain vehicles and all-terrain vehicles that are being developed to carry artillery and mortar systems. Moving into uh, the nuclear competition, we really don't know how many nuclear warheads the Chinese have. Uh, they've never told us. They're probably never going to tell us. Um, estimates are produced. Uh, I tend to look at this from the perspective of <coughs> if China has an ICBM unit, if we know how many ICBMs are in the unit, and we know how many warheads the ICBM carries, we can come up with estimates of how many warheads the Chinese may have. And, uh, well, bottom line is that if you assume two units for this list of ICBMs, although the submarine launch ballistic missiles will remain constant because of uh, the number of ballistic missile submarines, if you assume two units for the ICBMs, and that each unit has one reload for the launcher. Medium-range ballistic missiles and short-range ballistic missiles all have reloads. If we, if we assume there's reloads for ICBMs, then we can very easily foresee China exceeding 1,000 ICBM warheads alone, ICBM and SLBM warheads. The United States, with our remaining uh, nuclear control agreement with, with uh, Russia, we've both agreed to have about 1,500 uh, uh, nuclear warheads on deployed ICBMs. And uh, China has also developed the small ICBMs that will allow its new large missiles to carry the BF-41 in particular up to 10 warheads. And the Chinese missile companies are also investing heavily in new civilian space launch capabilities. Uh, one of these companies, China Aerospace Science and Industry Corporation, CASIC, 
as a family of solid fuel uh, space launch vehicles that it's developing. Uh, the large vehicle called the Kwaizhou 21 is a larger solid fuel rocket, larger than the solid fuel rocket booster on the U.S. Space Shuttle, former U.S. Space Shuttle. If this missile was developed into an ICBM, there's a long-standing relationship in China between space launch vehicles and ICBMs. If KZ-21 becomes an ICBM, it could carry 20 tons into low Earth orbit, potentially 100 warheads. That's amazing. And there's been a rapid development in medium range and, and new intermediate range ballistic missiles, theater strike systems, to include air-launched ballistic missiles, and very soon, according to Chinese sources from last year, sea-launched ballistic missiles with maneuverable hypersonic warheads. Very difficult to shoot down with current technology. Combat aircraft are, are developing a pace. The next sort of workhorse fighter will probably be the J-16, uh, equivalent of Soviet uh, Russian uh, Sukhoi 30, but with better electronics, better weapons. Uh, here we have uh, the Chinese already are marketing a hypersonic speed uh, ground attack missile that the Pakistanis say could become an anti-ship missile, guided anti-ship missile. Very long-range air-to-air missiles with dual-mode guidance. Uh, something that, that we don't have. Unmanned systems, we hear a lot about, about these in, in the press. Uh, uh, airborne unmanned systems, uh, sea-based, underwater unmanned systems, and ground-based unmanned systems. China is investing heavily. As it begins to introduce fifth-generation, what we call fifth-generation combat systems, China is also working on sixth generation combat concepts. Uh, the the J-20, China's first fifth generation fighter, uh, according to some China sources, they could build up to 400 of them. We only have, uh, what, uh, 170 uh, F-22s after the hurricane. Um, again, uh, dependent on Chinese uh, development of, of turbofan engines, but a lot of money is being devoted. Toward the sixth generation, I mentioned the Strategic Support Force. The SSF is working hard to dominate what they expect will be the next realm of warfare. The combination of cyber, information warfare, with space warfare, with energy weapons. Uh, in, in, instead of, instead of uh, uh, attacking your force on, on preemptively before it, it uh, goes to war, why not just call all the wives of all the pilots or of all the tank drivers with a robocall and say, look, if your husband gets out of bed, uh, your retirement account is going to disappear. Uh, the gathering of databases, uh, the, the 
weaponization of artificial intelligence, uh, the, the dominance of low Earth orbit, makes those scenarios uh, possible. And uh, the Chinese are, are investing heavily in, in uh, making sure that their strategic support force dominates this, this next era of warfare. China is also investing in, in uh, combat in the near space realm, the region just before low Earth orbit, where uh, radar and electronics uh, become funky, and uh, you can go in and out of space if you have the kind of cross-air vehicles that China is also working on. Weapons in space. If you look at uh, some Chinese academic journals in 2013, uh, one of China's leading weapons, laser weapons developing institutions proposed a five-ton chemical-powered laser combat satellite. Uh, the KZ-21 could loft four, four or five of those. Uh, Electrochemical weapons, space application. Also, uh, a nice nifty article looking at uh, the uh, potential for using low Earth orbit platforms to bomb the Earth. Something that uh, the Russians considered doing, uh, uh, taking their uh, Mir space station, equipping it with uh, uh, cut-down cut Buran space stations, and using those as Earth bombers. I expect that the future Chinese space station, which could be beginning to enter space in next year or the year after, to also be dual use, to also be able to conduct military missions or to support them. China has other kinds of space power ambitions. It wants to loft huge, very thin mylar uh, uh, solar energy gathering satellites and beam that power to Earth. Some authorities that I've spoken with uh, uh, acknowledged my concern that an energy gathering satellite like this could also be turned in the direction of a target to beam that energy at a target. And then there's the potential for China's militarizing the moon. Um, in May of this year, Kanwa Asian Defense Monthly, uh, edited by Andre Pinkoff, somebody that I run into often at arms exhibitions, somehow managed to obtain an American account of a conference held in, in China that was a PLA conference all about how to militarize the moon. There have been other indications of China's strategic intentions for the moon. In my opinion, China seeks to control the Earth-Moon system as it seeks to project military power globally on Earth. And the more the United States and our space entrepreneurs talk about the space economy going to the moon in a massive way for, for economic gain or going to Mars for economic gain, this probably stimulates the PLA to want to seek control of the Earth-Moon system even more, to be able, if you, in a sense, to impose a toll booth on what, what we're working for, a, a space economy that benefits everybody. Okay, very briefly, 
what, what's to be done? Well, I think that, it, that we are we're quite fortunate that uh, President Trump has decided to begin to tackle many of the difficult challenges trying to disarm the North Koreans, uh, beginning to state clearly the challenge China poses, Vice President's recent speech, uh, increasing sanctions to compel China to change its predatory economic policies, committing the United States to real rearmament to be able to meet the challenge from Russia and China, recommitting the U.S. to going to the moon, and just this past weekend withdrawing from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with the so former Soviet Union that has all this time prevented us from developing the kind of medium-range and intermediate-range missiles we need to deter China in Asia. What else might we consider doing? How about a full-out information campaign? Translate the annual Department of Defense reports. Why not sanction, right now, those companies that are giving transporters that carry the North Korean ICBMs aimed at America. We need to rapidly develop our own medium-range and intermediate-range ballistic missiles to deter both North Korea and China, deter China from taking advantage of a crisis in the Korean Peninsula. We need to really commit to rearming or arming Taiwan sufficiently so that it can deter a possible invasion by the 2020s, early 2020s. We should be encouraging our space entrepreneurs like Elon Musk to uh, quickly complete projects like the Big Falcon rocket, which could put 150 tons of cargo on the moon. That's just an amazing number. We should also revive Cold War institutions like the Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Export Controls, or COCOM, to far better control the technologies that China is gathering up like a vacuum cleaner to support its military development and modernization. We need to enlarge NATO, <coughs> not just in a formal way with new members, but in an informal way, by allowing for uh, virtual cooperation, co virtual military exercises, uh, uh, virtual online uh, constant information exchanges. So much of what China is, is doing now is in, in, in an operational sense, depends upon uh, knowledge of everything that's happening. A war against Taiwan could begin preparation near the Indian border, and, and vice versa for India. Both of those should be talking to each other constantly, or have the means to be able to warn each other of developments on, on both ends of China. All right, those are just a few things I've, I've exceeded my uh, speaking time, but there is time for uh, questions, and I'll stick around uh, for, for as long as there are questions. Okay, Paul Berkowitz uh, had his hand up first. So, my question is a short thing. Um, the question is, when we do these freedom of navigation operations, and we say we've gone within 12 miles of the territorial, you know, seas of these um, artificial islands, you know, when we, within is a legal word. I mean, I can come within a second of uh, dropping my, uh, you know, cell phone. It doesn't mean done. within, you know, but isn't necessarily inside the 12 mile zone. It could be outside. So I'm really wondering if we're if we keep using the word within, are we actually going inside the 12 mile zone? 
I don't know if you know the answer to that. And the other part of uh, is more of a statement, you know, I think it was you years ago told me it's not China's military that feel like, it's the Communist Party's military. So I think it would be helpful, you know, if we referred to, instead of referring to China, we referred to the Communist Party. It gives people focus because just like if I go to fix my car, you know, and I know it's my starter, I need to know if it's the solenoid, the armature, or the, uh, the brushes, you know. So if you identify the problem, you can start working on it. And I think as long as we keep saying China, 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 and not the Communist Party, we aren't working for it. But in any case, um, I just wanted to know if you knew about whether or not we're going within or inside the program. I'm sorry. Okay, Paul. Paul uh, is asking whether in freedom of navigation operations, uh, the United States is going within the 12-mile territorial limits. Uh, that uh, that most almost all countries uh, recognize around the disputed areas in the South China Sea, especially, and uh, is also concerned uh, that that we get our get our terms correct, that we correct our terms and uh, refer to uh, the China's military as the Communist Party's military. But on the latter point, Paul, uh, that's very clear inside China, as as we both know. Uh, if you're if you're a member of the People's Liberation Army especially an officer, especially if you're in, in a high command position, you're very much aware that you work for the party and uh, not, not, for the, not for the country. You work for the country second, for the party first. Um, and uh, it, it would, of course, uh, it's your, your point is, is well taken. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a matter of uh, the effort that we expend uh, uh, Adding a little extra verbiage, but you're but you're right about uh, the FANOP uh, uh, limit and such. Uh, you know, we've 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 both been been watching debates about this, and uh, I have to say that I'm I'm not completely sure whether we indeed go within the 12 mile limit. Uh, this is certainly what what reports say consistently, uh, but um, these these operations. Uh, happen way out there. We we find out about them usually after the fact, uh, and uh, we're we're really uh, not not able to uh, say for sure what what has actually happened. Uh, Ken Allen had a question. Ken Allen from who who is now leads uh, a new uh, aerospace uh, Chinese aerospace uh, studies cell at the National Defense University, uh, a very exciting uh, development over the, of the last year. It's actually called CASI, Center of Space Studies Institute, put in the Air Force. And I'm going to take exception with two things when you say 400 white 20s and 4,500 J20s. And the bottom line is this. The PLA, of course, you have to look at it from an organizational perspective. When I was now at China in the 80s. That time 50 air divisions. Each air division had two residents. You should have been having roughly, at that time, maybe 40, 50 aircraft. Today, there are less than 20 air divisions, three bomber, three transport. Each transport division has three residents, roughly 20 aircraft, that's 60 aircraft. You divide that, 400 Y-20s, that's 16 air residents. No way in hell are they going to do it. Same thing on, they now have fighter brigades, ground attack brigades, and they take that 400, divide it, again, 20, that's 16 new brigades. So there's no way they're going to do you take a look at the mission of the, y or the J-20. What is it? 
it is long distance over water in itself. Whether they need corner aircraft. And they're not even refueled. So you got to take a look at this thing from an organizational perspective. It doesn't fit into their structure. It just doesn't do that. One of, one of the joys of, of the last uh, 20 years for me has been to, to carry on marathon uh, debates with Ken over, More than issues, over, over issues like this. And, uh, yeah, my, Ken, my, my response is, I mean, I mean look, we're, we're approaching 400 J-10s. We're approaching, you know, at least you add in the J-15s, 400 uh, Sukhoi-based platforms. What are the J-20s going to replace? Um, and over a 20 year period? I, I, I look at this as a power ambition. Um, I mean, my you know, footnotes that I, that I use are, are tenuous. Chinese, uh, internet commentary, uh, and the such. Uh, uh, so uh, I, 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 will, I, will, I will admit that. However, uh, if, you, if you are looking at the kind of Power projection ambition that is that is represented by the naval buildup, by the investment in organizations, the, the proto alliances, and where they're going. Uh, Four hundred J20s over the lifetime of that platform is is not unreasonable. Four hundred Y20s is also not. Not unreasonable, in, it is in my opinion. An organizational fit is totally unreasonable. And you have to look at that. You have to look at their history, where they are. And I know you're looking at strategy, but it doesn't fit into their structure. It's just flat doesn't do it. Current structure. Even their long-term structure, it doesn't fit. We, we know about their long-term structure? Well, I'd say I have a pretty good feel for it. Yeah. You, you have your opinion, I have my opinion. Yes, ma'am. Um, but I'd like I'd to ask you to expand a little bit on um, your point number seven there and how it relates to the Trump administration's ideas about the Indo-Pacific security diamond or the quad or whatever you'd like to call that structure and whether it's a role for Taiwan in that case. Uh, to your last point, there really should be. And including Taiwan, even even on a virtual level, would would be an enormous uh, benefit for how I see the Trump administration's uh, ambitions for promoting greater Indo-Pacific uh, cooperation, especially among the Indo-Pacific democracies. Um, Taiwan's geostrategic position is crucial. Uh, because it is where it is, it can monitor so much of what the rest of the democracies want to know. and. Uh, Providing some means, even if, in, if, in, if it's just a, a company that provides a, a really, really secure server. Because you can imagine what a target that would be for China's cyber army. But if such a server could be secured sufficiently, why not allow India, Australia, Japan, South Korea, the United States to uh, throw information every day, every hour, every minute into a program that makes sense of it all and allows all the members of the virtual uh, network to benefit. Um, is, is, is this where we're going? I, I don't know. 
it, is it where I would suggest we go? That's more the, more to the point. Okay, sir, in the front. Uh, yes, I have two questions. Number one, there have been speculations as to China stealing some of the uh, technologies that we have. Uh, how, I don't know, but maybe you can comment on that. Uh, number two, the uh, militarization of uh, uh, South China Sea, uh, the island. I always wonder why. Is it just because of just to dominate the, the region uh, or maybe something else? Uh, I don't really worry about Sentaku Island because uh, that, that, that's, I don't. I don't think that's really a big issue, but those two, uh, if you can. Certainly. Well, uh, it, it, it would take a series of lectures to, to describe China's massive global uh, espionage and information gathering system. Um, you, you, multiple books could be, could be written. Um, it's pervasive. It's everywhere, and uh, it's 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 always always on the march. Um, as for the South China Sea, the three new bases that the Chinese built on top of uh, coral reefs, along with uh, a few other smaller bases that don't have airfields, uh, extend the reach of China's aircraft and ships into the South China Sea help to protect an eventual larger deployment of Chinese SSBNs into the South China Sea, uh, protect the, these assets on Hainan Island, which uh, will include the only uh, uh, space launching facility capable of, of launching the new heavy lift, liquid fuel heavy lift vehicles that China is going to be using at least so far, to go to the moon and then to Mars. So controlling the South China Sea is actually critical to controlling the Earth-Moon system. Controlling the South China Sea secures Hainan Island as the principal space base for launching spacecraft large enough to obtain advantage on the moon and then beyond. Uh, Yes, in the back, uh, the, the lady. My name is Jeanine, the voice of Vietnamese Americans. Um, would you discuss the geostrategically importance of Vietnam and the ADMM plus happening recently and um, the achievements of that as in general practice went there and there was a certain I, I don't follow American-Vietnam relations as closely as I do a few few other countries, but it's it's clear to to most observers that uh, following uh, the rapprochement between the United States and Vietnam, that uh, the United States has been increasingly interested, as are many other countries, in in pursuing a kind of cooperation with Vietnam that uh, adds to the kind of 
pressure that we should be putting on China to pursue peaceful avenues towards settling the disputes of the South China Sea. And that uh, you know, Vietnam, of course, is, is limited in the extent to which it will cooperate with the United States and other countries because of its fear of China. Um, this, is, this is all legitimate, but in the meantime, it's certainly in the interest of the United States and India and others to uh, participate in Vietnam's, uh, in the strengthening of Vietnam's military uh, for defending against, against China, and Vietnam has, has uh, significant arms sales relationships with Russia and growing arms sales relationships with uh, Europe, Israel, and uh, the United States is now uh, in a position, has, has reached a point where it's, it's willing to sell uh, defensive equipment to Vietnam as well. Whether Vietnam will choose to become more active in promoting uh, uh, non-military settlements to the disputes in the South China Sea remains to be seen. Vietnam is far more concerned with defending its many island holdings and probably does not have military forces sufficient to do that job. Uh, Lu Ping. Yes, uh, in lieu of uh, mirror media, New York, um, on Taiwan, Pentagon just confirmed that the uh, U.S. Navy did send two ships uh, sail through the Taiwan Strait. I, I don't know if it uh, happens to open. And uh, my question is, uh, you know, Taiwan's uh, Defense Department announced that, and the U.S. confirmed. Instead of U.S. Uh, announcing that Taiwan uh, confirmed, is there any political implication? No, none whatsoever. Uh, the uh, the United States uh, does not comment on uh, ongoing military operations un unless there's. There's a, an absolute need to do that. Uh, it tries not to comment on, on future military operations. Uh, there are lots of reasons for doing this. Uh, at the top of the list, the safety of uh, the American military personnel involved. And uh, that, uh, that Taiwan would announce that the ships were making the Taiwan Strait Transit is uh, completely appropriate for, for the Taiwan government, which it has done on, on many occasions uh, during both uh, uh, naval and air transits of the street by American ships and aircraft. Yes, sir, in the middle. Uh, Austin Lucas, CSIS. Uh, I had a question concerning the military importance of the East China Sea, and that's the first part. And secondly, if North Korea and the United States open a trade agreement, how would that look with U.S. military of power in, in that region? Well, the, the East, East China Sea uh, in, in, involves many of the same geostrategic dynamics as Taiwan. Uh, it, it is uh, essential that uh, those, the, the sea lanes uh, through the East China Sea be kept free and open for uh, the efficient uh, operation of the economies of uh, South Korea and Japan. Um, 
and Taiwan as well. Um, it, is, it, is, it is essential, in my opinion, that the United States prevent uh, or oppose immediately any Chinese military move against uh, the Senkakus. Uh, th their disposition should be settled peacefully, if at all. Uh, we recognize uh, formally uh, the Japanese administration of those islands uh, uh, and uh, any, any Chinese move against them that, that we did not support Japan in a defensive way uh, would, would have a, just a, would be a, a stunning blow, probably a death blow to the U.S.-Japan alliance. Now, if the United States and uh, North Korea sign a trade agreement, uh, what, 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 what are the implications for uh, uh, the, the American uh, military uh, uh, position in Northeast Asia? Um, well, a trade agreement is a trade agreement. If the North Koreans make any demands that we end our alliance with South Korea prior to signing a trade agreement, well, there probably will not be a trade agreement with the North Koreans. So, and, and indeed, the North Koreans uh, uh, over the decades have, have tried to uh, attach uh, uh, such, such demands to almost any minuscule advance in, in uh, uh, diplomatic relations, but uh, consistently they've been rebuffed. And uh, I would assume we would, we would rebuff any similar demands with any future trade agreement with the North Koreans. If, if, uh, if a trade agreement uh, is, is uh, certainly an agreement with, with Seoul, and uh, we, we both agree that it does not affect uh, in any way uh, the ability of the United States to fulfill alliance obligations, uh, to, to the South Koreans, then, then why not? Uh, a trade, trade can have uh, many, many positive uh, effects on, on the North Koreans, but uh, we should not allow such, such a development to have any effect whatsoever on our, on our uh, political or military relationship with the South. Um, I, I, I don't, the, Chi, the Chinese would probably, would probably not uh, cheer loudly and publicly, but privately they'd probably cheer a lot. Any, any kind of economic opening that relaxes the burden on China to support the North Koreans uh, is, is, really, is money in their pocket. They, they would dearly welcome that. They, they probably want to encourage it, probably are encouraging it. Uh, but I, I don't think that would have any impact on anything to do with the East China Sea, though. Okay, sir, you've been waiting patiently. Uh, I was wondering about your um, scenario regarding potential invasion of Taiwan. And on, at least on your slide, you mentioned surprise as, a, as an important factor. But I was wondering, first of all, do you think it's a necessary factor or just an important one? And following on from that, given the sheer logistical um, supporting of the key, you mentioned 10,000 river points, for example. Is surprise even possible? I, I would strongly recommend uh, Ian Easton's recent book on uh, the Taiwan invasion scenario. Uh, he exhaustively uh, uh, goes over all, all, of, all of these issues. 
Uh, yes, uh, surprise is, is going to be almost essential. Um, and uh, it will truly, truly stretch and challenge the creativity of the PLA to uh, probably over many years uh, be pre-positioning uh, these, these barges next to supplies so that the troops can get there in short number of days and uh, the, the requisite mass of troops can be made ready. But the initial, the initial attack would, would almost certainly require uh, uh, almost, almost perfect surprise, provided, provided there's not a massive distraction that prevents or delays the United States from becoming involved. And that is why one of the, that is one of the reasons why China has invested so much in North Korea's rearmament, especially its nuclear missile rearmament. Sir, we, we, ha we have to take off soon? Okay, one last question. Last question, all right. Well, thank you for the presentation. That was very interesting. My question's on responding to China's global ambitions. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative in China has economic ambitions as well as military ambitions. Absolutely. And the Belt and Road Initiative is promoted as an infrastructure, investment, education, et cetera, et cetera, type of initiative. Uh, most of your proposals deal with kind of countering the military uh, dimensions of China. What do you think the United States ought to do regarding the economic aspects of the Belt and Road Initiative? What should we be doing on the economic front? Well, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to, to match uh, the volume of monetary volume that China is putting behind these initiatives. One Belt, One Road, Maritime Silk Road. Uh, there's, there's even a sort of a propaganda equivalent of, 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 this, of this as well. People-to-people -people exchange mechanism, I think they call it. Um, what we can do is promote greater economic and political transparency especially in, in countries that are our friends, that are, that are already uh, uh, democracies that, uh, or, or shaky democracies that, that require that kind of help, uh, uh, or uh, on, on a global scale, uh, when, when we can identify when, when, a, when, when the Chinese economic juggernaut has, has Overburdened uh, a financial system uh, and and uh, moved it into uh, increasing dependency, then call that out. And uh, I mean, there there are already thoughts afoot about how to save some of the South Pacific Islands from the hole that they dug themselves into, accepting uh, too many Chinese loans uh, because the. the the monies involved are relatively small. One, one of the ideas is to actually go out and just pay, pay off the bribe, pay off the Chinese. Uh, what kind of uh, deal that you get out of that uh, remains to be seen. You know, more Chinese loans or, or a, a, a financial system in which transparency is paramount so that a political system can, can better avoid the dangers. Um, 
I would hope that's where the administration is, is tending. And uh, from what we hear, that that the, the willingness of higher administration officials to actually speak about this and call begin to call out call this call out this dynamic that the Chinese are creating is, is at least encouraging. Okay. Well, look. Thank you very much for for uh, attending this this uh, gathering. Uh, as well, uh, my thanks to the uh, the internet audience, and uh, uh, may you all have a have a wonderful evening.